Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. Moya Moya disease is a rare and progressive cerebrovascular disorder that can cause an array of neurologic symptoms ranging from headaches and tingling sensation in the limbs to transient ischemic attacks and stroke. The disorder is often seen in patients with large artery intracranial occlusive disease, but misdiagnosis and delayed treatment are common pitfalls for this patient population. In today's episode of Neuropathways, we're discussing the management and treatment of Moya Moya disease for these patients. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Andrew Russman join me for today's conversation. Dr. Russman is medical director of the Comprehensive Stroke Center and head of the stroke program in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. Andy, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, Andy, I always uh, loved the name Moya Moya. I thought it was always interesting. My understanding, it was described about 65 years ago, so it's as old as I am. And I'm sure you're going to define it for us. Uh, But give us a brief overview of Moya Moya disease and its mechanisms. So basically, Moya Moya is an uncommon uh, cerebral blood vessel disorder, uh, which is characterized by progressive narrowing of uh, the large intracranial arteries, uh, usually the uh, carotid terminus region, the uh, carotid artery in the initial segments of the anterior cerebral artery or middle cerebral artery. Um, And it's associated with the development of small uh, collateral channels, which are small vessels that develop in order to deliver blood flow to an oligemic or ischemic uh, deep brain area. Um, This condition, as you mentioned, was first uh, described in the 1960s and characterized at that time largely in Japan. Uh, And as a result, when uh, investigations took place at that time, uh, the best technique, still the best technique for visualizing these blood vessels is angiography or conventional angiography. And when these small blood vessel channels are visualized on an angiogram, it often produces a hazy appearance to the tissue in that area or to the blood vessels, or it looks potentially like a puff of smoke. And uh, these terms in Japanese translated to moya moya, which is where that phrase came from in describing this clinical condition. It's not one clinical condition in terms of uh, cause. Uh, it's, it's a disease process that's characterized by these progressive blood vessel narrowings. And there's a number of potential etiologies or implications in terms of the pathology, pathogenesis of how these blood vessels develop. So you've alluded to it a little bit, but, you know, there's a difference between Moya Moya disease and Moya Moya syndrome. As a neuro-oncologist, I used to look after a number of neurofibromatosis patients, and they have an increased instance of it. And certainly patients that have radiation therapy around the skull base, uh, we can see a slight increased incidence of uh, moya moya in these patients. But can you tell us a little bit of the difference between moya moya disease and moya moya syndrome? 
Moya Moya disease is characterized by the same angiographic appearance, but it is an idiopathic disorder. It develops and it develops for relatively unclear reasons in most patients. Uh, in those patients, we have the best understanding are those in which there appears to be a genetic basis. There does seem to be some association between a mutation in the ring finger uh, protein 213 gene, which is on chromosome 17. And this does represent a factor that can contribute to the future risk of developing moya moya disease, which typically has its onset in childhood. That particular disease uh, is characterized by the progressive blood vessel narrowings. Yet, if we look at like the total population among, let's say, the Japanese population, only about 10% have this very specific genetic variation in these genes that affect the ring finger 213 gene. Whereas uh, in the U.S. population, when we do see this, it's about 3%. So the majority of Moya Moya disease that we see occurs, again, for some idiopathic reason. And it's not necessarily associated with a variety of conditions. Some of the conditions we see in childhood that are associated with Moya Moya syndrome are conditions that are like hematologic conditions, like sickle cell disease can be associated with it. When we see Moya Moya disease, there has been a long-term experience in that condition. Again, there have been uh, attempts during procedures or surgical procedures to revascularize patients in which we've tried to look at the blood vessel pathology. And again, there's not one uniform pathology that is associated. It does appear to be some type of fibrotic process or thickening of the blood vessel wall uh, rather than something extrinsic to the vessel. It seems to be intrinsic to the vessel. And that is the characteristic of Moya Moya disease. Whereas Moya Moya syndrome is a much more heterogeneous disorder and is characterized by a variety of circumstances. You mentioned one of them, Glenn, or a couple of them. This exposure to skull-based radiation can be seen as a delayed complication of the development of uh, a vasculopathy that affects these areas of the brain that were irradiated. Uh, it can be seen in certain tumor uh, types. Uh, it can be seen in patients with history of meningitis. Uh, we see it in sickle cell disease. Uh, that's you know something that we might see a little bit more often than the other uh, hematologic conditions. We've seen this in polycythemia vera. We see it in conditions in which people have an early onset of more accelerated uh, atherosclerosis. Sometimes you see this in systemic lupus erythematosus. Uh, you see this characteristically in Graves' disease, especially with thyroiditis. Uh, it's been reported uh, in type 1 diabetes. We certainly do see that condition developing, and we speculate on the reasons. We can see it in conditions like sarcoidosis and uh, a whole host of other conditions in which it has even a more rare occurrence. I, again, we can see it in conditions like Sturge-Weber or tuberous sclerosis. We see it in Marfan syndrome, or other disorders like Sjogren syndrome. And these causes of Moya Moya syndrome are particularly important when compared to Moya Moya disease. So in Moya Moya disease, from an investigational perspective, we're looking for some of these other conditions, for instance, systemic erythematosis, lupus erythematosus, or 
type one diabetes that may have an onset as a result in childhood and have some appearance to affect these vessels. But for the most part, we don't often find the occurrence of these conditions. Whereas in the adult population, much of the focus on understanding the pathogenesis is related to the treatment for that associated condition with the hope that by treating that underlying condition, we can abate further progression of the disease. So whether it's sarcoidosis or glycemic control in diabetes or uh, control or treatment of systemic lupus erythematosus and some of these other conditions that we mentioned, aggressive treatment of the underlying disorder is critically important uh, in combination with any understanding about revascularization. So, Andy, in your practice, what's the typical presentation for these patients? Are they presenting with TIAs, strokes, seizures, nonspecific neurologic symptoms? Yeah, so in general, 80% or more of these patients are going to present with ischemic symptoms. Some of that can be in the context of ischemia potentially inducing more migraine headache activity, as headache is not an uncommon presentation, but it's typically ischemia more often than not. And a subset of patients may have a hemorrhagic presentation, an intraparenchymal hemorrhage that is part of the initial presentation. Those are the two presentations we typically see. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but you mentioned the angiogram. And I know that uh, routinely when we see patients that we think have had a TIA, a vascular event, when I'm on service, everybody gets a CTA. Can you visualize this on a CTA or do they need to have an angio? Well, uh, both. Uh, certainly we can visualize uh, some of these small blood vessel channels on CT angiography. However, the precision and understanding uh, how blood flow is being delivered to a specific area of the brain, it's really necessary to have uh, diagnostic cerebral angiography. Essentially, every patient uh, with Moya Moya will end up getting diagnostic uh, cerebral angiography as part of an understanding of you know, how they are perfusing the ischemic brain or uh, what has led to the hemorrhagic uh, occurrence in a specific location. Just give us a little more detail on your diagnostic workup. I mean, you mentioned a little bit ruling out some of these various disorders, but uh, go through some of the diagnostic workup for us. So typically someone who presents, let's say, in early adulthood, in their 20s or 30s, we will uh, investigate uh, these potential causes by looking initially at the cerebral blood vessels, which blood vessels are involved. Is this only one internal carotid artery or middle cerebral artery or carotid terminus, or are both involved? So that initial approach is going to, okay, was this a, a hemorrhagic or an ischemic presentation? So MRI imaging of the brain. Uh, and, and sometimes it can be helpful to have contrast imaging in the circumstance to look and see whether there are uh, changes in the leptomeninges. Uh, for instance, uh, associated disorders may have a pachymeningeal presentation, and seeing this is going to be important to understanding the disorder. So MRI of the brain with and without contrast. Initially, uh, if we have CT angiography, which we often do, as you mentioned, in the emergency department who patients present, we're going to have that basic understanding of where these blood vessel abnormalities are. Then we're going to embark on understanding of what's going on with the blood vessel walls. Does it have characteristic changes that we would think you see in more of an atherosclerotic picture 
Or is this something that you might see in something that looks more, let's say, concentric in terms of the degree of enhancement of the blood vessel wall on specialized imaging? So we're typically doing MR angiography uh, with and without contrast using at least a three or seven Tesla magnet to visualize whether there's enhancement of the vessel wall and what's the characteristic of that enhancement within the vessel wall, again, to have an understanding of which category of disorder this uh, puts it in. And then we're doing other imaging of the brain to understand how on MRI imaging, the brain is responding to blood flow changes. At our institution, we've developed a protocol using pre and post acetazolamine MR perfusion maps uh, using a technique to look and see whether there is uh, appropriate augmentation of flow uh, after acetazolamide administration or challenge uh, in terms of looking at uh, a uh, perfusion imaging or perfusion abnormality. This helps us to understand, is there an adequate cerebrovascular reserve within the affected uh, blood vessels in order to be able to tolerate disruptions in cerebral blood flow that occur in, in everyday life? So the other uh, considerations of things that we are going to do in investigations are an extensive blood work evaluation. We're looking for inflammatory disorders, rheumatologic disorders, autoimmune disorders, uh, typically looking at not only uh, at an ANA panel, but an extractable nuclear antigen, looking at a variety of different rheumatologic factors, looking for uh, causes of vasculitis like, um, you know, ANCA, we're going to look at rheumatoid factor or cyclic citronellated peptide. In the occurrence of this, we are going to look for potential infectious causes. So we can see the appearance of blood vessels mimicked in patients who have varicella vasculopathy. We can see this in a herpes simplex vasculopathy. Uh, so we're doing some blood work to attain that, but critically important is the next stage of doing then a lumbar puncture in those patients. So lumbar puncture is going to help us to understand what's the immune activity. Uh, is there a relative intrathecal concentration of IgG synthesis with an elevated IgG index? And then what makes up that relative intrathecal increase in production? Is that due to something like an infectious cause, like you could see in varicella or with uh, herpes simplex? Or is it from an autoimmune etiology, which you can see in patients who have Sjogren's or sarcoidosis or uh, a variety of other conditions in which you'll see that type of autoimmune development. In addition, we're doing uh, blood work, as I mentioned, uh, looking for thyroid diseases. Uh, sometimes if we're concerned about the occurrence or possible occurrence of within the blood work of some indicators, let's say of sarcoidosis, we want to at least have a chest x-ray. We might want to observe whether there's a acetylcholinesterase level that's abnormal within the blood. But sometimes we'll proceed to CT of the chest or abdomen pelvis, looking for whether there's lymphadenopathy. Again, as we've seen, patients who have these conditions do have different responses to revascularization and critically important to know this information in advance. So I think uh, I sorry, I elucidated uh, blood work uh, and lumbar puncture, detailed MRI imaging, and obviously most importantly as well, uh, diagnostic cerebral angiography, which not only tells us how the patient gets blood flow, but how we might revascularize them uh, if that's necessary. 
So sounds like an extensive workup for these patients. The Moya Moya disease, as I think you alluded to, tends to be more bilateral and affect the internal carotid artery area. Do you see much disease in the posterior fossa in these guys in the basilar or they don't? So traditionally, the disorder was not described that way, but certainly we can, especially at some of the genetic disorders. Uh, We have a number of patients we follow in which uh, their specific genetic polymorphism is associated with a vasculopathy that's more extensive. We often hear the description. And when Suzuki first described uh, the stages of the Moya Moya vasculopathy in the late 1960s, they focused on the anterior circulation, looking at the internal carotid arteries, but there can be involvement of other blood vessels. In Moya Moya disease, this is less common outside of the genetic subtypes. Let's say we have the diagnosis of Moya Moya. Let's look at treatment options. What percentage of patients can we just treat medically? Uh, what percent do we have to do some type of revascularization to increase blood flow? And, and what are the medical and then surgical options? In general, the investigations that you and I talked about are going to help us to characterize. So if we look at patients, what we think was Moya Moya disease, in some cases, uh, is this is a progressive disorder and slowly develops over a long period of time. We can see that patients will adapt and develop uh, new vascular channels and create their own extracranial to intracranial connections. Sometimes we refer to this as auto bypass. So what will happen is, is that let's say the middle meningeal artery will feed through the skull and provide additional blood flow, the cerebral circulation. Patients will get collateral flow from the posterior circulation, feeding flow into the anterior circulation, And this can happen to a degree that produces either relatively minimal or little perfusion abnormalities. So in patients who present in which we've incidentally identified this, sometimes this happens in patients, let's say, with headache or migraine in which we do MRI imaging and find, oh, they have this moya moya vasculopathy, we might actually discover that they've already made either their own auto bypasses progressively over time or they have adequate cerebral blood flow that they have no abnormality in cerebral perfusion that is significant. So patients who are already getting adequate cerebral blood flow are people that we're going to treat medically. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that these patients can hemorrhage. So how nervous are you about antiplatelets, Coumadin, those types of things? Yeah, so in general, if someone has presented with an ischemic presentation, uh, antiplatelet therapy is indicated, but we are more anxious about anticoagulation. There is certainly no evidence that anticoagulation is helpful in the population of patients with Moya. Potentially, it produces a greater risk, as you alluded to, with hemorrhage. And because hemorrhage can make up these presentations, one of those questions is often, if you do present with a hemorrhage, is there a benefit to surgical revascularization? And as we get into our discussion and we talk about the available data in in medical treatment, you'll see that uh, both patients with hemorrhagic and ischemic disease may benefit from the same approaches to revascularization. And what percentage of these patients present with headache? Is it common? It is pretty common. Uh, I would say more than half of the patients have headache as part of their presentation, but it may not be the predominant presenting symptom. And I would be pretty concerned if you use calcium channel blockers that they're 
blood pressure could drop, which would then affect their blood flow and worsen their conditions. So use of calcium channel blockers in these patients? Well, I think it depends on the subtype of patients. Sometimes when patients present and they do have uh, ischemia-induced migraine process, their most disabling symptom can be these, you know, migraine auras that they experience. And sometimes drugs like verapamil as a calcium channel blocker can be very helpful for these auras, either visual or sensory or even language auras that they may get in ischemia-induced migraine. Uh, and the advantage of verapamil is it's really a pretty weak blood pressure medication. It doesn't typically significantly reduce blood pressure. It's, it's more of a chronotropic agent. It may slow the heart rate down a little, and we need to keep an eye out for that. Can you stent these patients, or are the segments too long or not in a location you can usually stent? Yeah, so b- both. It depends on the clinical presentation. So we certainly have, in patients in which we think it's more of an accelerated atherosclerotic picture, we have certainly tried to stent these patients. Although if you look at the experience of intracranial atherosclerosis, many of these patients are going to have that involvement of the distal internal carotid artery segments. The experience of intracranial stenting in that population uh, has very high rates of recurrent restenosis, even in patients who don't have uh, this more moya-moya type changes. So as it's progressing, the early stages in the vasculopathy, there may be a a small blood vessel channel. And so the thinking is, well, maybe we should try and keep that channel open. But in my experience, when this process occurs, we're not as successful in being able to keep the blood vessel open. So even though they may stent and then temporarily be open, the vessel will still progressively occlude. So let's move to revascularization, direct or indirect revascularization. Can you discuss those? Sure. So if we look at the majority of patients who present with moya-moya vasculopathy, whether it's ischemic or hemorrhagic, if they have adequate cerebrovascular reserve on perfusion imaging, and they're already either auto-bypassing or they have excellent collateral circulation, this population of patients generally doesn't undergo revascularization. However, the subset of patients, the much larger subset, let's say uh, 80% or more of the patients who present who have a cerebral perfusion problem, or they have an inadequacy of the cerebrovascular reserve, uh, we're going to offer extracranial to intracranial bypass using either a direct technique or an indirect technique. Direct technique is typically connecting uh, a surface blood vessel like the superficial temporal artery to the middle cerebral artery. And the surgeons who perform that need to be experienced and perform a large number of procedures in completing that technique. There are a variety of different approaches surgically to actually making the bypass uh, and from a direct perspective. And that is the typical approach to treating most patients who are adults. And if you said, like, what about children? So I'd say most children who have moya-moya disease more often are going to undergo an indirect technique. That indirect technique involves a technique where the branches of the superficial temporal artery and some associated tissue uh, dura uh, muscle are laid upon the brain tissue. Uh, Basically, they dissect out this area of the scalp tissues. They open a craniotomy and they introduce the extracranial tissues by laying and tacking them to the surface of the brain. This technique in which they use 
the branches of the superficial temporal artery. It's most often was described as an encephaloduroarteriosynangiosis. And many variations involve use of some of the muscle tissue. And when the muscle tissue is used, then it's called an encephaloduroarteriomyosynangiosis. So these techniques are the predominant indirect techniques that are used. Now, there are variations on this that my colleague uh, experts such as Dr. Mark Bain or Dr. Peter Rasmussen or Dr. Nina Moore, techniques that they use that are variations on these techniques, depending on the area of persistent ischemia for the patient or area that the patient has had prior hemorrhage or predominance of these moya-moya vessels. So, Andy, you gave me some great Scrabble words there. I don't know how many points some of those uh, terms would be for the revascularization. Since the disease is bilateral commonly in uh, patients that have moya-moya disease, how often do patients need to have bilateral revascularization? So if you present with bilateral disease, you are likely going to go on to have bilateral revascularization. It typically, we take the most symptomatic side first, and that's the, the first technique, and there are variations on this. But then after the patient has adapted to that, within a few weeks, they undergo treatment on the other side. Sometimes the patient presents, and one side is symptomatic and very involved, and the other side is not only not yet symptomatic, but there is still a blood vessel channel there, and it's not clear that there's a failure of the cerebrovascular reserve. So we may do serial imaging and follow that area. This is sort of akin to how you follow the patient who has unilateral disease. So if we have a patient with unilateral disease who gets bypassed, uh, there's an experience that up to 40% of the patients with unilateral bypass will go on to develop disease on the opposite side, on the contralateral side. So it's important to do follow-up serial imaging in this population especially those with unilateral disease, because they do often develop disease on the contralateral side. It's interesting and good for you that the external carotid artery is not significantly affected. Do we have any idea why that is? Is the muscular uh, wall characteristic different? Yeah, I, I think we, we don't know those answers to that question, but I do think that in terms of how the tissues are being supplied, uh, obviously it's very different. And uh, resistance to flow is very different within the external carotid circulation versus the internal carotid circulation. Any active research uh, going on that can uh, shed any light on this? Yeah, so I think, again, if you look at randomized studies, there isn't a lot of randomized studies in, in populations of patients with more and more. And I think it's because most clinicians, treating clinicians, don't have clinical equipoise for not performing revascularization in somebody who presents with ischemia and a very clear moya-moya vasculopathy. However, we have a lot of uncertainties about the approach toward more probably the moya-moya syndrome patients, where we see such a heterogeneous group of patients and different conditions that are associated with the vasculopathies. So I think some of the important work that has to be done over time is to characterize this population um, more appropriately in terms of applying a standard evaluation to all these patients and then understanding which and what are the propensities or likelihoods of, of detecting this within a large you know, center such as the Cleveland Clinic. And that's an effort that's underway on our part. Now, 
others have looked at this and found variable percentages of these presentations of the subtypes. From a treatment perspective, it still comes down to if the patient is having recurrent ischemia and they can't provide that own adequate uh, flow for themselves, then revascularization is critically important to preventing future events. Whether it's disease or it's the syndrome of Moya Moya, revascularization or surgical revascularization is the uh, mainstay of therapy. And we'd like to better understand how we combine medical treatments with surgical treatments, especially those with the Moya Moya syndrome. So any final words of advice uh, for our audience listening today? You know, I think if you have a patient that has a Moya Moya vasculopathy, you need to broaden your understanding of the investigations that need to be done. I think there tends to be a focus more on, you know, this patient has a blood vessel problem and we need to revascularize too. We need to take a step back and say, the majority of the patients, we have at least some adequate period of time to investigate the underlying etiologies that may contribute. And especially within the adult population, it's critically important to uh, have the patient seen by an experienced center, such as the Cleveland Clinic, that does revascularization and investigations uh, as well for moya moya vasculopathy. Again, taking this comprehensive approach is critically important to managing the long-term course of those who have moya moya disease or vasculopathy. Well, Andy, thank you very much for joining me today. You can be sure that any of our radiation-induced Moya Moyas or NF-related will come directly to your center to help manage these patients. Been very insightful uh, and uh, always appreciate learning some new information. I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Glenn. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our Consult QD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.